Welcome back. Come follow me with fair, faithful answers to New Testament questions. My name is Jennifer Roach. Today, we're talking about a great topic. What does it mean to be saved? Just, you know, we're just hanging out with some some real minor things around here. I know that I say every topic is important every time I introduce it to you, but they all are. So I don't know. Here we are. Um, as you know, we are following along with the Come Follow Me readings and addressing typical evangelical questions that come up as we face them in the readings. And today's question comes from one of the most famous Bible passages ever, John 3, 16, and we're going to go all the way through 18. Listen to what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. If you are familiar at all with evangelicals, if you have them in your family or if you are friends with them, you might already imagine the big pile of worms that this opens up. Our purpose here is not to feel debate, but to help you understand where they are coming from, why they talk about some of these things differently, how to have a better conversation with them, and maybe even offer some of the gifts that our faith has to bring that might encourage and help them. Well, if there ever was a topic that Latter-day Saints and evangelicals get confused over with language, it's this one. What is salvation? So our agenda for today is first, we're going to look at how evangelicals understand salvation and why they understand it the way they do. Next, we'll try to answer the question as it comes up for them in a way that they can hear. And we'll talk about the unique contributions of our faith to this part of the conversation. So what does it mean to be saved in evangelical speak? Um, in our church, our Latter-day Saint church, when we talk about life after death, we have a conceptualization that pretty much says everybody is going to be saved in some version. We get anxious about what exactly that will look like, and especially anxious over what the relationships will be there. But the question isn't, will I be saved? The question is, what is it going to be like? Right? We're coming from an entirely different presupposition than they are a huge question for evangelicals because the question of will I be saved it, th that's not their answer that, that's not the yes of course I'll be saved but what's it going to be like they they don't even get to the what is it going to be like because the question of are we going to be saved is so huge um, I want to help you understand why it's this way for them so first we're going to talk about evangelicals broadly we're going to look at two subsets that exist within the evangelical world and how they view it a, a little bit differently, um, and then a, a broad and, and a more specific response to them. So first, in general, evangelicals believe that after this life is over, each person will face judgment where there is really only one question from God. And that question is, what did you believe about my son, Jesus Christ? And those who can answer the question by saying they believe Jesus is Lord, they receive a reward of eternal happiness in heaven. And those who can't say that Jesus is Lord or whose response is, who is this Jesus? I've never heard of him. 
they are condemned to eternal suffering in hell. Um, historically, Catholics believe like there's some wiggle room in that for them. They have a conceptualization of purgatory and possibly some movement in purgatory. Evangelicals have none of that. It is a one-time judgment that can never be changed and the results are decided upon your death. There's no possibility for change in the afterlife. There's no um, preaching to them and they accept the gospel. That's just, it's not part of their conceptualization. Um, that's true. Even if the person's lack of belief in Christ is because they were born in a time and a place where no one had heard of Jesus. So, it's, I mean, it, it can get pretty harsh. If you remember from an earlier video, you know that evangelicals, as we know them today, they're really a post-World War II invention. And one of the original goals of their movement was to take down barriers that churches had put up for people coming to Christ. And as their name, evangelical, implies, they are very interested in sharing the message of salvation with everyone. But in the early days of their movement, they had a big problem as they felt like churches were putting up, in their opinion, too many barriers to faith. And one of those was requiring people to be baptized. That has, <laughs> believe in be baptized has been the way that churches have brought people in since the New Testament days. Um evangelicals wanted to soften that. And so they change it to believe and say the sinner's prayer. Later, you can show evidence that you have done this by going through the symbolic act of baptism, but baptism in and of itself is not efficacious. It is not actually doing anything. It's simply proclaiming publicly the thing that has already happened, and that thing is the saying of the sinner's prayer, which roughly is admitting to God you're a sinner, that Jesus died for your sins, he's the one and only way for salvation, and that you accept that. That's essentially what the sinner's prayer is. There, when Judgment Day arrives, um, the question really for evangelicals is, did this person pray the prayer or didn't they? And and that's really what they what they think that it is. So that's salvation for them in a very general sense. If you've said the prayer, heaven. If you haven't, hell, end of story. However, there are a couple, there are two subsets that really we need to, to talk about when we're talking about how evangelicals view being saved. And I don't want to get too far off track here because we certainly could. But there are some distinctions to talk about here. Evangelical is a very broad term. It's not a denomination. It's a descriptor that applies to many different types of churches. It applies to many denominations and non-denominations. You can be a Baptist and an evangelical. You also can be a Baptist and not be an evangelical. You can be a non-denominational church and still be evangelical. You can also be a non-denominational church and in theory, at least, not be an evangelical, although I, I struggle to think of what the example of that would be. Most of your non-denominational churches exist within the evangelical family. There is another descriptor that is important to talk about here, and that is Calvinist. So evangelicals come 
kind of roughly in three varieties, Calvinists, non-Calvinists, and those who are, I would call them blind to theology. The blind to theology category simply means this. The pew-sitting members in that church are not taught the theological terms or categories uh, about salvation, about like what is Calvinism, what is not. Their, their leaders have completely done away with that language and are much more likely to just say, we, you know, we just love talking about Jesus and it's all about Jesus. And, and they're never talking in specific theological terms. Now, the leadership of that church and the denomination to which they belong, if they belong to one, absolutely has a stance on this. Their pastor was educated somewhere. You can look and see where did he go to divinity school? What does that school teach? Oh, he is a Calvinist or he's not a Calvinist. Like it, It's not that hard to suss the information out, but they don't talk about it in public. And so that's why I call them that they're, they're people that are blind to theology. In reality, it's only two categories. You're a Calvinist or, or, or you're not. So about a hundred years ago or so, it would have been pretty easy to spot a Calvinist church because they were all either called Presbyterian churches or reformed churches. This has not been the case for a very long time. If you live in a kind of a normal American city, there is probably some hipster church down on the corner and they call themselves something like explore church or engage, or it's got an exclamation point after it, something like that. They could be Calvinists. They could be non-Calvinist. It, it, it's, it's roughly a toss up. You would have to do some digging to find out. So what is a Calvinist and why in the world is that important? So John Calvin, he was born during the Renaissance. Um, he was born in France. He is educated at the University of Paris as a lawyer. After his university studies, he breaks away from the Catholic Church. France is largely Catholic, and he becomes a Protestant. French Protestants are called Huguenots, and they were heavily persecuted. Um, they, they were heavily persecuted at the time that John Calvin converts, and then they are later even more heavily persecuted kind of as a consequence of his conversion. Different different story, different video. <laughs> um, so, so Calvin eventually, he has to, free to Swiss, flee to Switzerland. He ends up in Geneva. Um, there, there's just too much violence against Protestants in France at that time. So he got out. Um you can tell that he was trained as a lawyer when you read his theology. He becomes a theologian, but you can see a lawyer's logic in what he is writing. And his biggest theological contribution is the idea that God is so supreme, so sufficient, so all-knowing that he already knows who will and who won't be saved. And, and when we're talking about saved at this point in history, Renaissance era, it's still the believe and be baptized version of being saved. It's not the pray the sinner's prayer version. Um, but, but John Calvin says, God knows that so sufficiently, it's identical to him choosing it. And this is where things get, they get really weird. The knowledge God has is so certain that his sovereignty over that decision almost causes the person to either choose or not choose. Um, the opposite is also true. If God has decided or foreseen that you are not to be saved, you won't be. 
whether or not you want to be. A person could very much want to be saved, and God has already decided they are not for the saving, and they will not be saved. The opposite is true. If God has decided to save you, salvation will become, Calvin calls it, an irresistible force to you where you don't even actually have that much agency about accepting it or not. It it is sort of, it's just in you and you are just irresistibly going to be drawn to it. So fast forward back to modern era, Calvinism has a huge influence on Christianity today, especially in America. The history of why that's true is too long to explain for this video. It comes to us from Calvin mediated through the pilgrims and, and all that that brings to us. And today, roughly 60% of evangelical churches believe in some form of Calvinism. And this is part of what fuels the, the grace versus works debate. A true Calvinist would say it's God's grace that you are saved. There's nothing you can do about it. You can't even choose it or not choose it. If God has predetermined it for you, there you go. Um, but in reality, it's not actually a clear cut distinction for evangelical churches to follow it or, or to follow Calvinism or not. Um, the opposite position than Calvin, it's called Armenianism. Um it, that's your Methodist churches. Um, at one point, Joseph Smith says, you know, gosh, if I had to choose between Methodist and Presbyterian, I would choose the Methodists. If you don't understand why, you will in a minute. Um, they believe every person has the possibility of being saved, that the church should work hard to reach those people if possible, and that the person can use their own will to decide to follow God and have their lives eventually li line up with what that means. I grew up in an evangelical church um, that was pretty typical of the time. And I think it's pretty typical of, of the day today. The sort of joke was you should spend your waking hours as an Arminianist, meaning you should work hard to spread the gospel to other people, but you should sleep at night like a Calvinist, meaning you should leave it all in God's hands and be content with whatever he decides because it's not in your hands anyway. A lot of churches do sort of the, the mix of the two like that. And you can see these two subsets, they're very, very different views on what it means to be saved. And so it might be kind of mind stretching for you to understand how can people who believe entirely opposite ways of being saved both be called evangelicals. They, they just are. Um, they all agree, whether they're Calvinist or not, they agree on the fact that after you die, you will face a judgment based on what you did in this life alone, and that you will either be sent to heaven or hell. Um, they don't have a super great worked out theology of how you spend your time in heaven. They actually have a better theology. And I say better because I just mean more developed theology around what will happen in hell. Um, the traditional view is pretty harsh. It's called eternal conscious torment, ECT for short. <laughs> it's terrible that that has an abbreviation, but it does. Um, a newer kind of thinking on that is called obliteration. Um, and obliteration is considered a kindness that's the best you can hope for. 
about 15 years ish, maybe 20 years ago, there was a movement in the evangelical world to reconsider what hell is and what it means and how time will be spent there. And this obliteration idea sort of came to be more popular. Um, and, and, and essentially, I mean, it sounds terrible to say that it's the best view, but essentially people who had either never heard of Jesus or who had rejected Jesus instead of ECT, eternal conscious torment, they're, they just no longer exist. They're obliterated. Um, the alternative is that they're consciously tormented forever. So I, it, it's rough no matter what you which way you go. Normally in these videos, I have tried to explain the evangelical position in a way that hopefully makes you say, yeah, I can see where they're coming from, even though I disagree. And I got to be honest, it's really hard to do that with this one. The best that I can do is point out that their belief system, whether they're Calvinists or not, it is highly reinforcing. When I was an evangelical, I bought into that system because of the self-reinforcing mechanism in it. There is a threat of eternal damnation hanging in the balance. Um, but let me tell you how that system started to crack apart for me just as a way to give you an idea on, on talking with evangelicals about this. So I grew up in a family. Um, my mom took us to church and my dad did not attend church. He would attend it if us kids were doing something, if it was a special choir concert, or if we had some role in the service, he would attend to come see us. Um, didn't have faith or belief on his own. And so I was taught as a girl that somebody like my dad would immediately go to hell if he died in his unbelief. And, and they would soften this a little bit for people like me saying something like, you know, life is long and, and you have no idea when someone's heart might turn to God. Like it, you know, like don't panic. It's going to be okay. But what happened was it turned out that my dad's life was not actually that long. He died in a car crash when he was 44 years old. I was 12, doesn't sound like I was very old, but I can tell you I was a weirdo of a kid and I was very interested in theology. I think I was, I just was born with the genetic predisposition to be interested in theology. I just came out of the womb that way. And so even at 12 years old, most of my questions around what was happening with my father's death were theological questions. Um, so I had to figure out how to understand that my church said my father was going to be consciously tormented forever without letting that break my faith. Because keeping my faith was really important to me. And in my little 12-year-old mind, I developed a secret thought that I could not tell anyone. And that was... I think my church is wrong about this. And I tucked that away. It would take me decades <laughs> to get the theological sophistication to talk about this in, all the way through. Um, but that's where it started. I actually can tell you exactly where I was standing when I had that thought. I think my church is wrong. The corner of 12th and M Street in Modesto, California. I know exactly where I was because that thought altered my trajectory the fruition of it would not come to pass for decades. Um, but I wouldn't be here today if I hadn't had that thought. 
of, I, I think they're wrong. I don't know what's right, but this cannot be it. I tell you all of that to say there are evangelicals out there who have questions about their own system, even if it's only very quietly. And frankly, our church, our Latter-day Saint church's conceptualization of the afterlife is far kinder, far more in line with the character of God than what they are being taught. I actually feel a little emotional about that. In this series, we are talking about the gifts that our church has to offer the larger Christian world. And there is no better one, in my opinion, than this, especially when we're talking about evangelicals. Because when you talk with them about what it is to be saved, you're going to have to fight past a lot of their anxiety and a lot of their defenses around the threats of hell and their worries about getting things wrong and the entire self-reinforcing system and all of that. However, you don't know if they might have a secret little thought like I did at 12 years old. I don't think this can be right. That It doesn't make sense to me. We have a kind of hope to offer them that your friends and family members might end up being curious about. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have a particular question that evangelicals ask that you can't figure out how to answer, or, or maybe it's your own question, Send me an email, jennifer at fairlatterdaysaints.org. Would be delighted to include your question on an upcoming episode. I'll see you next time.